if you would, turn with me to Luke uh, 22. We're going to pick up at verse 24. We left off uh, last week. Uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, is really the climax of, of uh, well, one of the Gospel stories. is, is the climax of, of, of the, the, the redemptive story of the Bible. When you look at, at all of Scripture, uh, one of the ways to understand uh, is, is, is to see it as a big reversal story. The, the gospel is and, the, and scripture is just one big reversal story. And, and included in this big reversal story are many little reversal stories. And let me tell you what I mean by that. You go back to the beginning and, and you read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's this, 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 this Trinitarian being, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And, and, and he has existed from eternity past and he decides to create, create everything out of nothing. And he creates angelic beings and he creates um, earth and mountains and stars and he creates uh, life and plant life and animal life and birds and insects and all these things. He creates all of this and then at the center of this he places a garden and he puts humanity in it. And, and humanity of all the creations that he's made, it's humanity that is said to bear his image. In other words, human beings are meant to be like mirrors. We're meant to show the, the rest of creation what God is really, really like. Now, uh, in addition to, 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 to this, this image-bearing nature that he gave us, he also gave us authority. He gave us power. He gave us control. He made us co-regents, co-rulers with him over creation. And the instruction is to reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. He even uh, allows us to name what it is that, that he's made. That, that sort of naming authority, is, it's a powerful authority to look at something and declare what it is, to name something. He gives us that. You know, the reality is, is if you find yourself, you know, someone who wants to be in control, who likes authority, who, who appreciates, you know, having some power or some measure of power, do you realize that's because God put that in you? You, you were made for that. The thing is, though, you were made for that to, in relationship with him. The problem happens is uh, there's an enemy. And this is a, a spiritual being we called Satan. His name actually means adversary. And, and this angelic being was created to worship God. And what he does instead is he tries to supplant God. He wants to, to put his throne above the throne of God. He wants to reverse created order. The created being wants to take over for the creator being. Now, he's not successful. But he goes to our first parents, and he tries to convince them to believe the same lie that he believes. And that is that they could reign and rule apart from God. They could be like God. You and I, we, we were created to have certain power and certain authority over creation. But, but we were supposed to use that in our relationship with God, not disconnected from him. And so there's this great reversal. In the fall of humanity, the, the way that things were created to be are reversed. They're messed up. And now all of a sudden we're enemies with God, we're enemies with one another, and we're, we're enemies with creation itself. So how will God go about redeeming that? How will he go about restoring things back to the way things are supposed to be? How does he write the world and the universe? Well, he does it by descending. Not by uh, elevating himself, but by coming down to us. And that's where we find the stories of the gospel is the, 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 the climax of this re big, big reversal story. Now, one of the ways we see little reversal stories, especially in the Old Testament, 
is within a dynamic called the, the elder brother, younger brother dynamic. If you think about stories that you may know from the Old Testament, uh, one of the popular ones, or one, the most well-known one, not the most, but one of the ones, is, is the story of Cain and Abel. Right? There's the elder brother Cain and the younger brother Abel. And Abel offers a sacrifice to God, which is more acceptable than Cain's. And it's the younger brother who's accepted and elevated. Uh, we see there's a, a man new, named Abraham, and he's called uh, and, and he's been given a special covenant with God that one day, uh, one of his seeds, one of his descendants is going to be used to bless the whole world, right? And so there's this promise that's then carried forward through the seed of Abraham. Now, Abraham has two sons. One is Ishmael. The other is Isaac. Isaac is the youngest. Isaac's the one that's chosen to move the redemptive plan forward, not Ishmael. Isaac has two sons, the elder Esau, the younger Jacob. Jacob is chosen rather than Esau. Jacob is the one who moves that, that, that plan forward. Jacob then has 12 sons, and it's, and it's one of his youngest sons who he dotes on and he elevates, and who actually one day uh, it becomes the, the second in position and authority in, in Egypt, and all of his family ends up bowing down to him. When uh, the, the, the Israelites... Um, had their first king. The, the king that they chose was a man named Saul, and Saul was, he was a firstborn, and he had, he had all the right things going for him, but he's not the one that God chose. God chose one who was the youngest out of eight brothers named David. See, throughout scripture, you see that God takes the, the youngest one and elevates them. Then we get into the New Testament, and one of the things that we find out about Jesus, one of the things that he's called, he's called the elder brother the elder brother. And Paul says this about him in, in, in Colossians 1. He says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is the first created being. He's uncreated, existing eternally with God, but he is the firstborn of creation because all things were made through him and for him. Firstborn of creation. Then Paul goes on, he says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So he's not only the firstborn of creation, he's also the firstborn of the dead or uh, new creation. The firstborn of resurrection. And all of this because of the blood of the cross. See, he's the elder brother. We, because of our elder brother, are adopted into the family of God. But you see, he's a different elder brother than we see throughout scripture. See, unlike Cain, he doesn't kill us. Uh, unlike Ishmael, he doesn't mock us. Unlike Esau, he doesn't want to kill us. Uh, unlike Joseph's elder brothers, he, he doesn't throw us in a pit and sell us into slavery. Unlike Saul, he doesn't try to pin us a wall, to a wall with a spear. See, he's a better older brother. And what does the older brother do? He descends. The preeminent one, the one who, who made all things, like the one who's at the top, he comes down to the bottom and he ransoms us by what? The blood of his cross. This is the great reversal. We tried to reverse the created over. 
order. We tried to go to the top. And as the result of trying to, to, to outdo God, uh, to, to be an authority over God, uh, we ruined everything. And the way things get fixed is, is by God descending to us. He lowers himself. He comes down. And ultimately, he goes to the cross. Now, uh, we're going to see the, the, the reversals in, in the passage that we're going to look at this morning. But I want us to, to be reminded of where we, where we just were last week. Uh, Jesus has called his disciples <clears throat> to, uh, to eat a meal with him in an upper room. They're going to share the Passover meal together. They, they, they shared the meal last week. We talked about that. And it's in that, that meal that Jesus, he brings something out of the past, the most uh, important salvation event in Israel's history, brings it into the present and through ceremony reminds them of how it is that they were saved from slavery in Egypt. But then he changes that ceremony and he begins to include himself. And he takes bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body which is given for you. It's me given to you that's going to save. And then he takes a cup and he says, this is my blood that's poured out for you. This is what secures for you a new relationship, a redeemed relationship with God. In other words, Jesus... He, he makes the, the, this new Passover event called the Lord's Table or the Lord's Supper. He makes it about him, and he says that we are to continue to remember him when we partake of it. We're continually to remember him. We're, we're to partake of the bread and the cup often. Later on, we're going to take it together today. But we're to do it to remember him. I, I want to just remind us of, of this, what we drew out last week, is that ceremony reminds all of us something important. And, and we, through ceremony, we remind each other. We remind Jesus to one another. When Jesus said, remember me, he wasn't just saying, remember my death, remember that I rose. He's also saying, remember how I lived. So, Jesus has just said to his disciples, remember me, and check out how they respond. Chapter 22, verse 24. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Uh, you, you've, you've probably heard Muhammad Ali's you know, famous statement. I am the greatest, right? right? It's, it's, it's a kind of egotistical remark, wouldn't you agree? But here the disciples are, and they're gathered around this table, and Jesus has just said, here's my body, here's my blood. I'm giving my life away as a sacrifice for you. And what is their response? It's to argue about which one of them is the greatest. I, I think that God sometimes, um, especially Jesus, when, in his relationship with his disciples, really understood what it's like to be a parent. Right? To have kids that are continually fighting and struggling with one another for dominance and control, for power, Jesus has been walking with these guys. They're supposed to be adult men for the last three years. He has spent three years of his life teaching others, healing others, feeding others, raising others from the dead, casting out demons in others. Like Jesus has lived this completely other-centered life, life, a life that's bent towards God and bent towards the people that God loves. This other-centric life, and after three years, here are these 12 clowns arguing about who's the greatest. How frustrating that must be. 
How frustrating. Now, uh, Luke is doing something here. In verse 23, uh, Jesus has told them that somebody at the table is going to betray him. And so they ask the question, which one of us is going to betray him? And then almost the same exact language is used in verse 24 for which one of us is the greatest. The language is almost exactly the same. And what Luke is doing is he, he's, he's, he's prompting this question. Will the disciples betray Jesus too? Not betray Jesus for money, but they'll betray Jesus in order to have positions of power and authority. Will they betray the kind of life that Jesus lived? Will they deny the life that Jesus lived? Jesus has just said, remember me. And we remember Jesus by living like Jesus. He wants his disciples to, to live like him. And did, did, was he jockeying for positions of power or honor? But they were. Um, this isn't the first time they had this argument. Back in chapter 9, Jesus has, he tells them the first time that he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. And, and we see the argument there. So chapter 9, verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. The one who is least that's the one who's great. They argued about this before. At some point during their journey, Jesus tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be killed. And what do they do? They argue about who's the greatest. There's this completely self-centered nature within them, arguing for position. Um, in, in Luke 14, Jesus confronts this in the Pharisees. And what Jesus is pointing out, you know, through, throughout the gospel of, of Luke and its context is that um, the Pharisees argued over this one time. The disciples argued over this multiple times. But Jesus in Luke 14, he says, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Exalt yourself, and the result is shame. Be willing to, to lower yourself, the result will be honored. That God lifts you up. We see this theme throughout Scripture. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is the reversal story. That as we try to elevate ourselves, we break creation. We break our relationships with him. We break our relationships with one another. We, we, we break everything because of our self-centered trying to elevate ourselves. And here's what God does. God lowers himself. God in Jesus takes on flesh. God in Jesus becomes human. And, and, and how or what kind of human does he become? He doesn't become a king sitting on a throne. He becomes a king born into poverty, placed in a feeding trough. Remember we talked about this last week, that here's God essentially saying in Jesus, here's my son, and he's the only thing that will satisfy you. Here he is, but he's born into poverty. His whole life, he's a working man. Like he works with his hands. He's a laborer. 
and he begins ministry, and, and he, he doesn't have a home, and he doesn't have money. Jesus said, I don't have a pillow to, to, to lay my head on. Uh, David talked about this a few weeks ago, that there's, there's this point where he's asked a question about taxes, and he's going to use money as an illustration, but he doesn't have any money. So he says, does somebody have a denarius that I could borrow? He actually has to ask somebody else for money to use an, as an illustration, because he doesn't have any. The God of the universe doesn't have anything. Because he humbled himself so much. This is the great story of reversal. So, verse 25, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. There is a hierarchy in the world. There is a way that, that authority structures work in the world but we're not to look like the world. The, the way that humans or the Christians lead should not look like the world's ways of leading. Our authority structures should look different. And, and notice what Jesus says, um, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. In chapter nine, he said, um, the, the least among you is, is the greatest. Here he says, the youngest, why? Well, he's pointing back to that elder brother, younger brother hierarchy. See, be the youngest and let me elevate you. Be the youngest, be the lowest, allow me to lift you up. We talked about this last week too, that one of the things that unites people is hatred. You know, your, your common hatred for a specific people or, or a specific person, like for the, the, the religious leaders hating Jesus, that their hatred crossed lines that were political and religious and, 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 and united them together. But there's a powerful force that's, that, that's greater than hatred that unifies. It's sacrificial love. And Jesus, in his sacrificial love, our elder brother descending to us, our elder brother, dying for us so that, that we are brought into the family of God, that we become adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. This is the unifying thing that takes people from, from every nation and tribe and tongue and culture and time, like all of these things that brings us together and makes us family because of what our elder brother did for us. That unifies us. But the thing that divides us is our self-centeredness. The thing that destroys unity within the church, the thing that destroys and, and tears our relationships apart is our self-centeredness. That's why James writes this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Jesus lived this life of, of other-centeredness. And so often we find ourselves so self-centered. Remember that homo incurvatus, man turned in on ourselves. And the call is to unbend ourselves and to bend ourselves towards him and towards the ones that he loves. Back to verse 27. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus sets this example. He's the one that leads the way. He's the elder brother who leaves the throne to come down and to serve. The call for us is the, is the same. But you see, in serving, 
that's the, the gateway to authority and honor. We, we tend to think that, that, that the human way of authority and, 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 and command structure is to, well, it is, it's to climb the ladder, right? To use your own strength and, 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 and your own muscle and your own might to, to get above and get ahead of other people, to climb those, those human authority structures. And, and, and Jesus says, no, it's a completely different way. In his kingdom, authority comes from a different place. It comes from serving one another. But in serving, we're elevated. What, look at what um, uh, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. When we remember Jesus, and remembering Jesus means to live like Jesus, we identify with him in his service, we identify with him in his suffering, we identify with him, and the result will be elevation. To reign with him. Paul says in Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. He's raised us up. Be the least. Be the youngest. Let me elevate you. Uh, verse 28. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I'm going to elevate you. Now there's something in here that's specific to the apostles. These 12 thrones reigning over the 12 tribes. That's not for you or for me or anybody else in this room. That's just for them. But the rest is for us. And here Jesus is, and he's seated around a table, a table in which these, these guys are trying to jockey for a position of honor, and he's saying, guys, there's a better table. There's a better table that this is pointing us to. There's a better table in which if you will serve like me, if you'll suffer like me, if you'll follow me, then you get a seat at that better table. You get a better position of honor. I love how in the kingdom of, of, of heaven, the way that Jesus described it, it's not a room like this where people are sitting in rows, singing and listening to never-ending sermons. Like, it, the kingdom of heaven, it pictured by Jesus, is a great big table. It's a banquet. It's food and it's celebration. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that's what Jesus points us to. And he's calling his disciples, stop jockeying for positions of honor here and now. Look up, look to something higher, look to that better table. That's one of the things that we're reminded of when we partake of communion together. There's a better table. And so Jesus elevates those there. There's, there's really three points today. I've gone completely out of order from our notes, and so I'm sorry, Nick, thanks. Um, one of the first points that, that, that I just make, this is the one we spend the longest time on, and that is simply this, is to not revert back to a previous state of spiritual immaturity. You look at these disciples, they've been following Jesus for three years. Three years. And they're still having the same arguments, and they're still dealing with the same self-centeredness. Let me ask you, like, as you mature as a Christian, are you moving from self-centeredness to other-centeredness? Are you moving out of yourself, unbending yourself, and, and finding yourself more inclined to him? Well, it moves into the second part of, of our passage this morning, verses 31 through 34. 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, there's a lot jammed into this, these few verses. And so to, to try to unpack this for you. What does Jesus call him? You notice? It's okay, we can. What did Jesus call him? Simon, okay, good job, thanks everybody. It's right there on the screen. Isn't it? It is? Is the font large enough? I can make the first. Uh, he calls him Simon. When's the last time Jesus called him Simon? Luke 5. When Jesus first calls him to leave his boat and to follow him. That's the last time he's called in Luke. That's the last time he's called him Simon. Since then, he's called him Peter. Now, Simon, the, the name means to hear and obey. To hear, to obey. Peter means rock or stone. It's interesting that Jesus would change his name from to hear and obey to a stone. But here we see both of his names used. You see it's, it's used at the, at the very end. Right? Peter's used again. But he hasn't called him Simon since Luke 5. Then he says Satan has demanded to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat. This is, this is a picture of testing, of trial. And, and, and the picture of wheat there is, is, is Jesus' way of reminding us of the parable of the sower. Uh, earlier on in Luke, Jesus tells, it was probably his, his most famous parable, about a guy who goes out, a farmer who goes out to sow seed. And the seed represents the gospel message. And, and that, that gospel message, it lands. For some people, it lands in soft, soft ground, soft hearts that receive it, and it thrives. But some seed uh, lands on, uh, on the path, and it's snatched up. Some seed lands uh, in, in the midst of, of, of thickets, and it's, it's choked out by weeds. Some lands on rocky soil. Get it, Peter? Rocky, Peter? It says this, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing, fall away. Here's what Jesus is saying. Peter, do you want to go back to the boat? Do you want to go back to, to where I found you? Do you want to go back to being Simon? You are about to be tested. And are you soft soil or are you the rocky soil? You followed me these three years with all this joy. And even now you're saying things like, you're going to follow me to prison and even to death. But in a time of testing, will you fall away? Will you fall away? Now here's the beautiful thing. Jesus knows the outcome. Jesus knows that behind uh, Peter's false bravado and all of this, this, this arrogance and, and, and I would do anything for you, I'll follow you to prison and to death. Jesus knows behind that that he's going to fail, but that won't be the final word for Peter. Judas, final word is betrayal. It's the only thing he's known for. The final word isn't denial for Peter. He will fail, but he will come back. Notice what Jesus says. He says, uh, when you have turned again. Not if. When you've turned again. Peter, I know you're going to fail, but that's not the final word on your life. 
There will be repentance. There will be turning. And after that turning, you'll be stronger. You'll be someone that your fellow apostles can lean on. The second point, revert back to faith through repentance. I want you to know this morning that your biggest mistake and your biggest failure is not the final word on your life. It's not the final word on your life. There, there, if you are still breathing, there is time for U-turn. Like if, if you're sitting here listening, like there, there is nothing that you could have done that will have erased Christ's love for you or his sacrifice for you. Like there's no sin you could have committed. That the blood of his cross hasn't paid for. Your biggest failure is not the final word in your life. Please remember that. Um, <clears throat> verse 35. And, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. Um, he is reminding them of something that happens earlier in Luke when he sent them out to preach. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal and cast out demons and, and to be received into people's homes and, and accept that. And, and he, he's reminding them of that fact. He's like, you didn't take any provision with you, right? You didn't need anything. God provided for you through the generosity of other people. Wasn't that great? That's all gonna change. Look at verse 36. He said to them, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now to be clear, Jesus is not... Um, He's not instructing them or, 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 or pointing them towards violence. Here in a little bit, we'll see one of his disciples act in a violent way with a sword. Jesus will condemn that. When you look at the book of Acts, you don't see disciples carrying swords. Okay? What Jesus is talking about here is there's a fundamental shift between the way that you were treated and the way that you're going to be treated. Where once the crowd's accepted me and embraced me, Jesus is saying, so they embraced you. Now the crowds are going to reject me. So they're going to reject you. It goes on, verse 37, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Numbered with the transgressors. In other words, Jesus is going to go from the category of loved and accepted and embraced in the category of rejected numbered with the transgressors. He's going to be executed. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be killed alongside thieves. He's rejected. And as the crowds rejected that him, if you identify with him, if you remember Jesus to one another through serving and suffering and following Jesus, then the crowd's going to have the, the, the same attitude towards you. You're going to be numbered among the transgressors. You're going to be the ones who are considered the outcasts and the immoral ones. Have you noticed that in our culture, there is a new morality that is developing. And it's a morality that is, that is actually looking at most Christian tenets and are, and are calling them wrong. That there's only one God. That there's only one way. That there is someone who's, who sovereignly governs truth for everybody regardless. Like there's this new morality that's developing and, and there's, there's new sins that are coming out of that. And, it, and if you identify with Jesus, you're going to find yourself in the category of the sinner. 
to identify with him is to be rejected with him. And that brings up the third point. It's to join Jesus in the reversal story. That's the call. See, Jesus, he's having this meal with his disciples. And, and, and remember, he said, I, I, I've wanted to have this meal with you. This is his last, last moment to, to spend time with them, to remind them of who they are and the new identity that they have because of him. And, and, and teach them, instruct them, to let them know what's going on. But, it, but it's this, this last special moment with them because everything is about to change. Everything is about to change. When he goes to the cross, everything changes. And essentially, that's where we're going to leave it this morning. Because the reality is, there's so much more of the story left to tell. Jesus is, is roughly 17 or less hours away from his final breath. Now, Jesus has he's eaten for the last time. He's slept for the last time. He's going forward, and it's just going to get worse from here until it gets better. The tension is building. And, and, and I hope this morning uh, not to leave you just with that unresolved tension. My hope this morning is, is to point you towards his life and remind you of how he lived, an other-centered life. And if you are to be his disciple and follow after him, that is the life for you. The way I want to close this morning is partaking of communion together. The, the trays are, are on the inside of the aisle. If you would take them and pass them out. And while you're passing them out, I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. See, there's a, a church that the Apostle Paul is writing to, and it's a church that's coming together to eat around a table. The problem is, is that when they come together to eat, some of them are getting drunk, and some of them are overeating. And some of them aren't even getting anything to eat. There's this self-centered attitude that has taken root inside of this church. And he addresses that when he talks about the Lord's Supper. Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. There are divisions inside of this church because a self-centered attitude has taken root. And, and Paul goes on to remind them of, of, of what Jesus did the, the, the night before he was killed. In verse 24, he says, he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance. Jesus told us to eat this bread in, in order to remember him, not just remember his death, not just remember his resurrection, but to remember the way in which he lived. His life was given to us. And he takes the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, to remember Jesus is to live like Jesus. And so when he gets to verse 27, he says this, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. An unworthy manner. Now, I want to say this, first of all. If you're here this morning and you would say, I'm not a Christian. Um, glad you're here. But it, 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 you would honestly just say, uh, he's, he's not God to me. He's not Lord to me. He's not Savior to me. Uh, he, he's, I, I'm not a Christian. And I want you to know, the communion elements, pass them by. 
Because I don't want you to, to, to do something or to, through a symbolic ask, act, confess something that you don't actually believe. Right? That if, if it's your integrity, like, don't do something that would, that, that would, that would be a lie. Right? But, but just so you know, the rest of you know, like, this text is not about a person who doesn't know Jesus partaking of communion. This text is about Christians partaking in communion in a way that doesn't reflect what Jesus is like. Jesus lived a completely other-centered life. An other-centered life. And here's a church that is living a self-centered life. And they're going to the communion table, and they're essentially saying, Jesus affirms of the life that I'm living. When in fact, they deny the life that Jesus lived. Right? Remember, Luke phrases what happens around that table that night. As here's Judas... And here's the disciples, and the, and the question is, is will the rest of the disciples betray Jesus by living a life that doesn't reflect the other-centered nature of Jesus? When we come to the table, are we holding on to some sort of centering of self? And the reality is, we are. Because we're fallen, and because we're broken. We could look down on the apostles and say, man, why did those guys forget so quickly? Why did they go back to arguing amongst themselves? Why did they talk about, you know, who's the greatest over and over again? Why did they do that? Because they were human. We do it too. As we partake of communion this morning, I, I challenge you to do this. To ask the Spirit of God, what are things in me that, I've, that, that I'm clinging to? But what are the ways in which I am self-absorbed and I am centered on myself? That I am homo incurvatus, right? I am man bent in on myself. What are the ways that I am, I am inward bent instead of other centered? And, and the way I, I want to help you identify that is by reading you, uh, the, the, there's about 60 commands in the New Testament called one another commands. About 60 times in the New Testament uh, we see the New Testament writers helping us focus on others. And so I want to read those. And, and as you listen to me read those, if one strikes you, sort of grab hold of it in your mind, meditate on it, spend some time going to God and repenting, acknowledging the way that you've been centered on self rather than centered towards others in that specific way. Confess it. And in faith, ask God to help you live out of it. Just one, as I read this list to you. I'll start with some of the warnings. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, you'll be destroyed by each other. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. Don't lie to each other. Stop passing judgment on one another. Be at peace with one another. Wash one another's feet. Honor one another above yourselves. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you. When you come together to eat, wait for one another. Serve one another in love. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak the truth to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. 
Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Then several times it says live in harmony with each other. Several times it says forgive each other. Several times it says in humility consider other people better than yourself. Four times it says greet one another with a holy kiss. Let you do that with what you want. Instruct one another. Five times it says encourage one another. And a grand total of 19 times it says love one another. Love one another. Uh, As we journey towards the cross, we're going to see the great reversal unfold as Christ bends the knee and comes and gives up everything in order to rescue us and redeem us. But we're not there. And in the, in the while, in the, in, the, in the moment, let's live with the tension. Pondering what Jesus is about to do for us. But yes, also, addressing issues of the heart. Helping us to, to turn from inward to outward. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for for first going to work to redeem us. We tried to usurp your your power. Uh, We tried to be God. Uh, We tried to live uh, and have control and authority apart from you. And your response to us uh, was humility. Your response was to pursue us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the ways in which you humbled yourself. That you became flesh and blood, that you were born into poverty, that that you lived a life completely focused on other people, pouring yourself out even to the point of death. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would enable us to one, identify the ways in which we are looking inward. Give us the eyes to see a life that's outward. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.